Welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martell. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. Welcome to Weird Studies. This is Phil. If you're thinking of bailing on listening to an hour and change podcast on an academic article, stop right there. You, with your finger hovering over your phone screen, checking to see if there's anything more happening out there in Podcastville. Cool it down a little. Sometimes you gotta slow down. That's why we like reading works from professional academics from time to time. The academic mode is slow. A lot of time is wound up in even the briefest academic article, time spent in the library or in the field or hunched at a desk sweating out one duly weighted word after another. Sure, it isn't always fun to read academic prose, but every now and then you're surprised by some piece of writing that adds a certain gracefulness to the often Saturnian products of the scholar's hard-grinding search. I'm thinking of the episodes we've done on Lisa Ruddock's When Nothing is Cool, Episode 5, Joshua Ramey's Contingency Without Unreason, Episode 22, and Martha Feldman's The Castrato, Episode 72. And this week we have turned up another stylish piece of work, Abebe Birhane's The Impossibility of Automating Ambiguity. We are not the Cartesian selves we still halfway believe we are, Birhane argues. The truth of the human is not to be found in some isolate condition once all extraneous variables, i.e. other people, have been removed. Rather, human selves are formed in relationships. As John Mbiti expresses it, I am because we are, and because we are, therefore, I am. This being so, machine learning can never do more than fashion a crude simulacrum of the human, a kind of digital doppelganger, because humans, being relational creatures, are inherently ambiguous, and ambiguity cannot be automated. Birhane writes, Machine learning systems, tools that fundamentally classify, order, and predict, I argue, are practices that reincarnate Cartesian and Newtonian worldviews that seek stable, predictable, and complete understanding. But people, and the social systems that they are embedded in, are partially open indeterminable, and fluctuating, meaning a complete understanding would imply death of the person or that the social system had come to a stall. Automation, which requires complete understanding, thus stands at odds with human behavior, which is inherently incomplete and unfinalizable, making machine classification and prediction futile. Given the open and incomplete nature of human beings and social systems, Automating sensible, as opposed to automating nonsense and random, ambiguity and indeterminability, is ill-conceived. A machine capable of grasping humanity, by definition, is capable of grasping open-endedness, incompleteness, fluidity, and ambiguity. Alas, this becomes something other than machine or automation as we know it. End quote. 
And you know what else is capable of grasping open-endedness, incompleteness, fluidity, and ambiguity? The Weird Studies Patreon, subreddit, Discord, t-shirt, beer, bookstore.org page, and probably a bunch more stuff I'm not even remembering. Is what? You know, at some point, Weird Studies stopped being just a podcast and became this whole thing. A massively relational entity. Not just JF and me saying stuff into a void. As I said the last time I did one of these intros, the appropriate emotion here is one of gratitude. I am grateful to everyone who puts themselves in relation to us, thereby making us who we are now. Okay, on with the show. So the story with this piece is that my friend, the big homie, Frank Diaz, who I know I've mentioned on this show before, um, Frank, sent me a PDF of this article a few months ago. And he was like, this is really awesome. You should read it. And then I just completely forgot about it. And then, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago, I was tidying up my computer desktop. And then I found it, started reading it. And I was like, oh, shit, this is absolutely right down the middle weird study stuff. And so I wanted to talk about it with you. Mm-hmm. The article is called The Impossibility of Automating Ambiguity, and the author is an Ethiopian-born researcher named Ababa Birhane. I hope I'm saying that right. I uh, cadged that pronunciation off of a YouTube video, uh, so if I'm wrong, you can uh, send a uh, handwritten letter to YouTube complaining <laughs> that they are disseminating false information. In any event, I really liked this article. Curious what you thought of it, JF. I dug it. I love how accessibly written it is. Um, first of all, it's a technical philosophical piece that's written in language that anyone could pick up. So mm-hmm. I really appreciated that. It's very pointed. So what it is, is essentially a critique of the whole idea of machine learning as currently practiced, you know, in machine in, learning and predictive AI. Yeah. And so the the argument is that human beings and social systems composed of human beings are inherently, in Birhani's terms, absolutely unpredictable. And so mm-hmm. any attempt by a technology to accurately predict human behavior, to accurately assess or uh, represent human personality is essentially a doomed prospect. It just won't work and it will never work. And I, I certainly yep. agree with that. Another thing that she touches on, which I find really interesting, is that she gets into how these predictive models and the technologies that assume these predictive models alter the way we act. They enter the social order and shape the social order such that it's not inconceivable that predictions might seem accurate to the extent that humans modify their behaviors in accordance with these models, you know, to, to, right. to fit and to exist within these models. So that's another super important point. But I love the, the, where I find the weirdness in this piece is in the vision of the human being that she's kind of um, propounding there in, in this piece, which is the vision of a human being and of, of human minds as extended, uh, fluctuating, changing, 
inherently social. Relational. Relational, exactly. So I really dug that. And also, another thing I liked about it is that it doesn't come down to kind of a categorical imperative, you know, on either or. She's very open to the idea of using technology to create a better world, but this digital technology would have to reflect the inherently and irreducibly analog nature of reality as humans experience it and as humans instantiate it. So all this to say that I thought it was a wonderful piece, should be kind of essential reading, especially given the the volume of material touting technology that we're exposed to. I think that this is a a sobering piece with a kind of underlying weirdness that I find really compelling. Yeah, absolutely. Strongly agree. To pick up on what you said last, the analog and the digital, this is picking up on ideas that we've been kicking around for a while that stems back to an article you wrote, major essay that you wrote on philosophizing with stranger things. And we talked about that in an earlier episode. I can't remember which number. Yeah. But you have made this distinction between the analog and the digital as a fundamental way of understanding different kinds of technology and not necessarily literally digital or literally analog, but the idea of discreteness, separateness, yeah, the creation of an object out of discrete packets of things. Uh, So we can imagine the difference between, say, an 8-bit picture of Mario from Super Mario Brothers. If you can visualize such a thing, little squares tiled together to form the image of a faux Italian plumber. (laughs) Now imagine a photograph of a dude at a cosplay convention wearing a Mario costume. Yeah. That's an actual thing that exists as opposed to the digital abstraction of Mario. And imagine taking a photograph with an old-fashioned single-lens reflex camera. Light is permitted through an aperture. The light is, for a certain short duration, it falls on a silvered surface, like a, a surface covered with reactive metal salts that will darken or lighten depending on the pattern of light and shade falling on it and that's how you get an image so it is an analog of something existing in the world or similarly phonographic recording like a a record is the little peaks and valleys of the groove that the needle rides down formed in analog to the actual vibrations of a source sorry you were going to say no yeah exactly exactly the representations participate in the flux they're not outside the flux of reality so there's no qualitative difference or difference in kind between a reflection in a mirror and a traditional photograph. It's essentially the same principles at work. It's light hitting things. <laughs> now, in a digital f- camera, you have a translation. That's the argument, is that there's a translation of the fluctuating material that's to be represented into a representation, which is created. It's almost like there's really is a black box in digital, that the computer creates an image that represents what was there. Right. And so in that sense, there's a fractal quality to the f- traditional photographic image where the crystals kind of um, are interwoven and uh, interlocked with one another in this kind of very strange way, which you don't find in a picture where it reduces to pixels. So there's an atomism to digital thinking, which 
extends far out of just digital technology. You know, right. Birhani is always, uh, she often brings up Descartes as the kind of culprit who brought into modern Western philosophy this atomistic, essentially. Well, Newton's more of the atomist, but this unitary way of thinking of reducing things to units, separable, discrete units in a void, interacting. That's kind of one of the steps that Descartes takes in his philosophy, although he goes he goes elsewhere, but the, the only part we kept was that first meditation where he reduces to a kind of solipsism, and that became the basis of modern philosophy. So, yeah, exactly. There's this, these two ways of looking at things. But since then, you know, I've always said that I need to write another piece because that piece was titled Reality's Analog. I feel like I need to write another piece called Reality's Digital because I think that one of the mistakes that I've ended up making in my own thought, but I think it's quite common and understandable is that it comes down to a kind of Manichaean dualism. Mm. And I don't think that's really helpful. If it comes down to another either or, it seems we're still stuck in that pseudo-Cartesian way of thinking. We're still being too right. digital. Yeah. Right. What we're calling digital doesn't have to be literally a digital thing, like a digital computer or whatnot. And so I can give you an example, which is typologies. The a characteristic form of intellectual work, especially characteristic of libraries, of library science, you create typologies. You have to, I mean, like, think about all the millions and millions and millions and millions of books that exist. You want to find something in that, yeah. you know, a Borgesian vast library that might be represented by like the Library of Congress or the British Library or whatever, but like even those vast libraries are but a portion of the sublime, immense, unimaginable whole. Okay, yeah. you want to find something in that enormous haystack? You want to find your little needle, the thing you're looking for? You're going to need a typology. You're going to need some way of reducing the vastness of all the books that exist into some kind of comprehensible form, right? So a typology gives you categories. You know, so like imagine that you were creating a typology of sexuality. That's that part of the library. What are different kinds of sexual practices? Well, there are heterosexual practices, there are homosexual practices, blah, blah, blah. And you could imagine somebody just sort of breaking it down from there. But, and this is something that is, I think, really central to Birhane's argument, and not only to her argument, but there's a whole literature of librarianship that worries a lot about some of the problems that you get into with the digital, that sort of quality of compartmentalizing human experience and human doings, or for that matter, just everything into little containers and then having to figure out how to organize the containers. There's a graduate student here, Kate Hamery, who very kindly helped me out on a bit of research, told me about a book that I hadn't heard about before called Cruising the Library, Perversities in the Organization of Knowledge. And it's by Melissa Adler. And this book points out how typologies or the, just the systems of cataloging that libraries depend upon, like they're necessary. And to say, I'm picking up on what you were saying, JF, that we don't want to get into some kind of just Manichaean thinking that yeah. typologies and so on are bad and we should do away with them because, you know, as Adler points out, as any sensible person would point out, we need terms for things. We need to be able to group those terms into comprehensible clusters and constellations. 
But there are all kinds of problems with that. So this book, Cruising the Library, deals particularly with the categorization of human sexual practices. And it starts off from, it pivots off of an anecdote. I'm going to read a little bit. This is from page 8-9 of this book. Adler writes, this project is in part a response to a pervasive sentiment revealed in the following exchange between a library patron and the chief of the subject cataloging division at the Library of Congress. Upon browsing her library shelves at the University of Washington in 1989, the patron noticed that books on child molestation were shelved next to books on gay men and lesbians. She wrote to the director of bibliographic control and access services at the university library and asked that the books be recatalogued. The librarian forwarded the letter to Mary K.D. Petrus, chief of the subject cataloging division of the LOC, Library of Congress, who then responded directly to the patron. And this is a quote from the response. I can understand your concern that works on sex crimes class next to works on gays, but this is an accident of classification in which some topics must appear next to other topics, although there may be no relation between them except that they are a subtopic of a larger subject. To even begin to contemplate any intent other than to arrange works on distinct topics on the shelves boggles the mind, hmm. which is fair enough. Yeah. And in a sense, that also is something that Birhene is up against at the conclusion of this essay, where she talks about the necessity of what one researcher calls a non-fascist, uh, like a non-fascist AI. AI. Yeah. yeah. Which is sketched or outlined or projected, but not exactly described how that would work or what different principles we would use. But that's kind of neither here nor there. It is a mind-boggling task to figure out how exactly would you re-inscribe re the digital. You can't really do without the digital. And yet we have real-world problems of social justice that come from the ways that we array our digital mappings of human reality. I'll have one more example from the same book, from the introduction of this, which is much more contemporary. The mere fact that the librarian uses the word the gays, which now um, is sort of a joke, gives you a sense this is from the 1980s. But much more recently, in 2016, this came up again with the Library of Congress, which announced that it planned on introducing two subject headings, unauthorized immigration and non-citizens, to replace illegal aliens, the single category that had hitherto existed in the Library of Congress cataloging system. Again, I'm going to read a little bit from this book. Quote, the authorization was quickly met by protest from the U.S. House of Representatives, members of which are pressuring the Library of Congress to retain aliens or illegal aliens. Conservative members of the House Appropriations Committee introduced a provision to maintain the heading in its report accompanying a bill for the funding of federal institutions, including the Library of Congress in fiscal year 2017. Now, Representative Diane Black, Republican of Tennessee, introduced a bill known as the Stopping Partisan Policy at the Library of Congress Act, because, of course, the, the very name of that act has nothing whatsoever to do with partisan politics. Ted Cruz, the minutely loathsome member of Congress from Texas, <laughs> got involved. Sorry, minutely loathsome is my characterization. It's not, not Adler's. And the conservatives, the Republicans, they want to be able to keep calling undocumented workers illegals because they love having a term that they can use to dehumanize people. 
And so, of course, in a gesture of nonpartisanship, they are going to go after the Library of Congress and try and force them to hold on to the term aliens and illegal aliens. Uh, why am I bringing this up? Because all of this might sound like some pointy-headed shit that academics are interested in, but no other sane person could possibly be interested in. But the fundamental point, if you were to boil down what Birhane's essay is telling us, it's that these kinds of classificatory schemes matter. They matter in how they map our brains, the way we think about things. They map onto our social realities. These systems, and, and we're not just talking about classificatory systems, but we're also talking about the automation of implementing them. Like, for example, using various variables to come up with a list of candidates for a job. Yeah, They have an extraordinary ability to replicate the past in the future or to make the future an extension of the past. And not just the past, but a particular past, the past and the desires of particular people, namely the people who are devising these systems and these technologies. And so this is a way in which seemingly pointy-headed, recondite intellectual problems like classification schemes in the Library of Congress, or our characterization of them as analog or digital, is not just an intellectual game. These things actually have real consequences to how we're living. And this is one reason why I was so enthusiastic about this essay, because it makes the humanistic side yeah. of technology unmistakably clear to us. Exactly. No, I, I really... Uh appreciated that too. I mean, she has some interesting things to say about categorization as a practice. On page 11 of her paper, she says, human categories, rather than carving nature at its joint, are developed on the fly to address goal-directed actions, which I found really insightful because it's not a rejection of the category of categorization, which would be categorical thinking. What it is, is that she wants to restore the practice of category making or conceptual thought, broadly speaking, to the realm of the ethical and the moral. In the same paragraph, she writes, creating categories and drawing boundaries is not primarily a technical choice or a purely scientific question, but necessarily an ethical and moral one, especially when such practice has a direct and tangible impact on vulnerable lives. And I think that the key thing here, and you just kind of hinted at that in what you were saying, is that what we have here in these predictive machine learning systems is that we have categorization in the service of control. Mm -hmm. The goal is to predict. You predict in order to control. The logic of control precedes or determines how categories are used. And how does control determine how categories are used? Well, control, the ethos of control, which is operative in our techno-capitalist uh, system, is that control must assume the categories are not contingent. Control must assume the categories are absolute, that they cut nature at the joints. If the categories are said to be contingent and created in a flux of ethical and aesthetic interaction between fluctuating beings, then you can't have control. So it's the way that categories are posited as absolute means that our categories, which are purely reflective of the past, are perpetuating a future in which the past is constantly reproduced with all of its injustices and uh, prejudices and errors. We basically are ensuring, and this is something that makes 
modern, you know, Western civilization very different, which is now global, very different from what anything that came before is that we've created a device that ensures that nothing changes. Mm. The society has convinced itself that it exists not just in a set of artificial digital environments, but it's convinced itself that the universe as such is digital, that everything has already been figured out. And now it's just a matter of managing, managing these preconceived units in an absolute space that is fully mapped out. You can see this is the whole ideology of Google is like that. And so it's, it's like how categories are weaponized by control is the real issue, I think, when we talk about this sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. And another thing that comes out of your comment that you just made is the question of creativity, which comes up strongly at the end of Birhene's paper. Uh, hold on for a second. I want to find... Uh... I mean, the, the opening line of that section is fantastic. Human creativity is marked by imagination and thinking of things that were not thought of before. Yes, exactly. It's, it hints at the, the new in the kind of Bergsonian sense of something unprecedented and unimagined until right. now. You know, That's what creativity hinges on, yeah. Yeah. Creative innovations that have come to define and revolutionize the world from music to medicine are often marked by surprise, spontaneity, and uncertainty. Creativity, Warero reminds us, stands in stark opposition to certainty and predictability. It requires unexpected and spontaneous behavior and not repeating past patterns and trajectories. Creativity, by definition, defies expectation. And I've complained on this show before about a kind of degenerated idea of creativity that one often encounters, which is the idea, ultimately, I mean, that's we've developed this idea a lot. We talked about it in our episode on 2001. We've talked about it in a couple of our episodes on the tarot, where our known friend, aka Valentin Tonberg, author of Meditations on the Tarot, talks about the closed circle versus the spiral, the distinction between the world seen under the aspect of the serpent, which is where you are endlessly reshuffling known things. You become wise in the ways of the world. You learn all the things that exist, and then on this account, creativity, the creativity of the serpent. That sounds, that's, that's catchy, isn't it? I like that. Uh, the yeah. creativity of the serpent is the creativity of shuffling known elements into new configurations. So the avatar of such creativity is the development of the smartphone, where we took aspects of a personal computer and stuck it onto a phone. And... The creativity of the dove, which represents the opened circle, the, the spiral that can go forever outwards from the center, is the creativity of unaccountable leaps. The unaccountable leap exactly. from the ape at the beginning of Kubrick's 2001, just having to put up with being eaten by big cats or being driven off by a more powerful neighboring tribe to imagining a world in which tapirs or rival tribes persons can be killed by the blow of a weapon. Yeah. And we talked a lot about that, that what really matters in that famous opening scene of 2001 is that the ape that undergoes this kind of transformation is able to go from seeing what is to seeing what could possibly be. And what ought to be, yeah. Yeah, what ought to be. And yeah. that is akin to uh, going from zero to one. No matter how many times you multiply zero, however many zeros you stack up, 
you will still have zero at the end of this operation. So how did we ever go from zero to one? It's not a change in quantitative measure. It's a change in qualitative measure from a certain point of view anyway. Maybe I shouldn't be bringing numbers into it because, of course, if we're talking numbers, we're talking quantities. But it's a metaphor, right? But you don't have numbers yet. When, you, oh, when all you have is zero and one, you don't have numbers yet. <laughs> so yeah, I think it <laughs> makes sense. But here I think you've located, and this is where I find the digital in Birhani's thinking is when she talks about creativity, because here we're leaping. I mean, if digitality involves, as William James says, when he, he calls it intellectualism, if digitality involves a skipping of the what he calls the intolerable intervals mm. of the fluctuating becoming world, then the flash of insight that defines the creative gesture becomes in itself kind of the digital aspect of the analog world. That's why we don't want a Manichaean either or. Right. Because you can't account for creativity in a world of pure becoming. No, it's um, true. That's a good point. The dove comes in from the outside and comes out from the center. There's a kind of a digital leap involved in that. But that's not the digitality of the technologies predicated on control and the assertion of absolute categories. It's completely opposed to that. I've been experimenting with an AI art algorithm called Midjourney. Um, I think I told you about this in the Discord film. This is um, essentially an AI that'll you just prompt it and it'll give you a you know a painting or <laughs> an image, and often the results are quite stunning and kind of scary because you can easily imagine how these AIs are making human artists um, expendable at least from a particular point of view that's, you know, rooted in expediency as opposed to like ethics, you know, you might think, well, instead of um, 
hiring an artist to make the art for this on the book that I'm going to publish, I'm just going to get mid-journey to generate a perfectly good image to my specifications. But then I was thinking about this and, um, and it occurred to me, I actually mentioned this in the, the Jim Rutt show that I did with uh, Michael Garfield last week, is that it seems to me like these AI art algorithms are missing something essential about what art is. If you imagine mid-journey, that AI system being developed somehow in 1900, imagine that that was the time where they deployed this, this artificial intelligence. How would you test it? Well, you would make it produce works of art, and then you would say, wow, that really looks like a Renoir, or that really looks like a Degas, or that really looks like this or that. But if it started to produce cubist paintings or abstract expressionist paintings, you would have thought at that time that the AI was a failure. Right. You had to set the conditions for what qualified as art before the AI was designed. If it's generating things that don't fit your conception of what art is, which is entirely based on what art has been, then you will not recognize the new. And so the AI system is ensuring that the kind of spontaneous, fluctuating, unpredictable, radically uh, contingent becomings of art stop. They basically just create a category of art and things will have to conform to it. Now, some people will argue that, no, the systems are actually really sophisticated and can learn and can evolve. They might instigate the next art movement. I don't buy it for a second because these systems are entirely geared towards the past. They lack the one element that makes human thinking and perhaps the thinking of many animals radically different from what machines do. The dove can't come in. You can never yeah. have the intrusion of the new. There's a great line early in Berhane's essay, a machine capable of grasping humanity by definition is capable of grasping open-endedness, incompleteness, fluidity, and ambiguity. Alas, this becomes something other than machine or automation as we know it. And, you know, apropos what you were saying about the, the this is a great thought experiment. Imagine this technology was available around the year 1900 and it coughed up something that looked like a cubist painting. The terms by which the AI is able to do its thing are entirely put in by human beings and that will necessarily be from the past, like in everyday in the, ev the everyday life of professional researchers, whether they're researchers in AI or anything else, we know perfectly well that there are all kinds of problems and limitations with a simple Cartesian view of the human being as a little autonomous machine-like packet, this uh, self-enclosed entity that put it in different environments, it will function identically and to the extent that it doesn't, we have to kind of eliminate those variables to come at an essence of what that little human machine is and does. We don't really believe that. And yet those ideas remain sedimented in AI. It's part of a past that is replicated. The idea that, in fact, human beings can be understood that way, that human beings can be understood basically as brains yeah. or being reduced to brains. This is another quote from page six of Birhane's essay. And she writes, research and memory testing, for instance, to a large extent proceeds from the assumption that memory is a purely cognitive process that resides in the brain. The individual is removed from her life world and tasked with recalling a series of images or words, often meaningless to the person, using flashcards or a screen in the artificial confines of a laboratory. Subsumed by objective and universalizable formulations, cognitivist approaches paint a picture of the person that equates persons 
with brains. I will also point out in passing for those of our listeners who are interested in the paranormal content on this show that this is also a reason why a lot of paranormal research, like for example at the Rhine Lab, is often held to be ineffective because you're asking people to engage with, you know, what Colin Wilson called faculty X, which is so much a relational faculty. It has to do with the human being in lived situations and surfing a current of life and scientific protocols such like, nope, we got to excise the subject entirely out of that and eliminate all of the things that make that particular aspect of human functioning, faculty X, what it is. Unsurprisingly, you're not going to get really impressive results with flashcard quizzes. Right. Um, that at least is an argument that I have read. Uh, I think George Hansen makes that argument among, among others. Quite apart from that, though, taking a step back, that would be an example of a way that we have these philosophical hangovers that remain sedimented in our technology, even as the best and brightest thinkers in that world know perfectly well that these are unwarranted assumptions about the human. But those philosophical assumptions remain sedimented in the technologies anyway. A perfect example of that, just parenthetically, is how um, you often hear that probabilistic science is somehow categorically different from Newtonian science. Like, I'm not a scientist, but on a purely philosophical level, any probabilistic system you care to concoct will have to posit as its fundamental terms, as the terms under which probabilities will be calculated, a set of Newtonian units. Like, in the sense that this is something that was a point that was made in a, a podcast I was listening to with a physicist. Uh, he was saying, essentially, yes, it's true that quantum physics, for example, is all probabilities, but the probabilities are on the basis of the interaction of particles, and the particles remain within the kind of Newtonian, the basic idea of a Newtonian space, uh, however strange the effects may be in an experimental context, we always have to go back to this idea. In a sense, it's kind of inextricable. There's an atomism to thought itself that you can't take out. So even though you might say, I'm not a Cartesian, I don't think in those terms, that type of thinking will still sneak into your highly complex systems. It still haunts it. That's one of the points she keeps making is that even though scientists have largely abandoned the Cartesian slash Newtonian model, it still haunts their work. It still shows up in all kinds of ways, especially when the bottom line comes into the picture, especially when it's about money, making money, getting projects financed, and demonstrating the efficiency of a predictive system. So you, you, you can't extricate yourself from that sort of thinking. Now, one thing I want to do is think a little bit about history, because we're talking about all the things that predictive AI drags along with it, all the assumptions that remain buried in it that result in, for example, you know, you have systems now that calculate recidivism rates for people. So you can decide whether an offender is to be granted bail or not, or uh, perhaps a more relatable thing for the majority of people listening to this 
podcast, just applying for a job. Major companies often use things like ZipRecruiter or whatever, which use computer algorithms to, at least their their boast is that they can help you plow through, you know, thousands of applications for a job to find the people who are most suited, most qualified, and so on. But there's a lot of evidence that it is exactly in this AI used for predicting social outcomes, as opposed to lower level tasks like facial recognition, where AI does way better than human beings do and will doubtless continue to improve. AI does some things really super well, but what it doesn't do is managing all of the complicated variables of human beings. The parameters that something like ZipRecruiter or or some kind of resume vetting service, like they're going to be looking for certain things that predict success, right? So we're going to look, okay, who's successful? Well, people with degrees from Harvard and Princeton are successful in American society. Okay, so introduce words like Princeton and Harvard as search terms. So what's going to happen is that the Ivy League system with this whole highly problematic history of entrenched privilege, gets replicated. And taking a step back, something that Birhanet says on a number of occasions is that history and tradition is often unkind to marginalized populations. And so whatever the history is, for example, the history of Harvard and Princeton wielding an outsized influence on American arts and public life, which they do, and we're creating a system that all it does is it replicates history in the past. I think the problem with that is that there are some real reasons to worry about stripping away history as well. And when I look at the techno hellscape of America in 2022, I don't see the world that tech bros are manufacturing for us to be terribly interested in history and tradition as such. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I see what Birhane is saying. So I want to take a brief, what maybe is a detour, but I think it's kind of important. I want to think about an essay by a guy named George Lewis, who is a musicologist and improvising musician who in the 70s was a part of the Association for the Advancement of Creative Musicians, a Chicago collective of African-American improvisers who were all about, we might say, free improvisation or a kind of improvisation that goes beyond the narrow language of bebop jazz, for example. Anyway, Lewis in latter years has become a very respected figure in my discipline, musicology. And a very well-known essay of his is called Improvised Music After 1950, Afrological and Urological Perspectives. And this is a piece that from a certain point of view, is kind of about John Cage and John Cage's attitude towards improvisation. And it's a critique, in the true sense of that term, of Cage's attitudes. And this sharpens our ideas a little bit about what improvisation is or can be. Basically, John Cage said that he didn't like improvisation. He didn't believe in it. And he had kind of zen-inflected reasons for that. His whole thing... John Cage, as a composer, was getting his own subjectivity, his own preferences out of the business of making compositional choices. So one of his pieces is Music of Changes, which is 
basically using the I Ching system of hexagrams that you arrive at through coin throws. And instead of putting in the readings from the I Ching, he puts in note values, durations, attacks, registers, and so on. And in this manner generated a completely random composition, a composition entirely from random operations within a structure that he had himself devised. So the compositional work he himself did was creating kind of durational containers for random events. But in this manner, he wanted to get his own personal wishes out of the way. And he, in his typical fashion, used Zen Buddhism as a warrant for doing so. And he would say that he wasn't interested in improvisation because it was just basically people expressing stuff they already knew, which I think is a gross misunderstanding of what improvisation is. But one of his big complaints about it is that an improvisation always ends up being about the improviser. And he didn't like that. What he wanted was a kind of indeterminate music that is being made fresh in front of an audience in the manner of improvisation, but not improvisation because not tied to the desires, the momentary whims of the improviser. In this respect, Cage is not alone. Cage is the most influential figure of the avant-garde after World War II, influenced many musicians to say similar things. But Lewis makes a really good point about how this is problematic. He writes, on the other hand, the African-American improviser coming from a legacy of slavery and oppression cannot countenance the erasure of history. The destruction of family and lineage, the rewriting of history and memory in the image of whiteness is one of the facts with which all people of color must live. It is unsurprising, therefore, that from an ex-slave's point of view, an insistence on being free from memory might be regarded with some suspicion mm. as either a form of denial or of disinformation. And this is very important, I think, that Cage's insistence on a kind of absolute impersonality is a luxury that you have when you haven't already had your history stripped away from you. And so the improviser in the moment of improvising is bringing his or her or their story into their performance. And I believe that strongly. I think every time that we record an episode, we're improvising and the show is coming from our history, my history, your history, our individual history as readers, as thinkers, our history with one another. And the idea of Xing that out in the name of some kind of purity seems to me to be, frankly, a little bit creepy. It is, in any event, not something that I can countenance for myself. And Lewis saying, yeah, for an entire people who have had their collective history torn away from them. This axing out of individual history must always be taken with a grain of salt. Getting back to this essay, The Impossibility of Automating Ambiguity, on the one hand, Bitterhene is, I think, quite rightly pointing out that the attempt to automate the ambiguity of the human results in the endless replication of outputs from the past without leaving spaces for the unpredictable and the contingent to open up. But at the same time, there's also a sense in which like the individual history of a person is a compound of all of those contingencies, all of those weird little one-off, never-to-be-repeated things that makes a person a person. Yeah. And that kind of history does get stripped away. 
by these technologies. And so yeah. when we're talking about history, again, we don't want to get into some kind of overly Manichaean way of thinking where we're going to be like, okay, well, the problem with predictive AI is it just keeps replaying the past in the future. I think it's more complicated than that. And I think history, especially in the sense of like the history of the individual that makes the individual an individual is something worth protecting. Oh, yeah. How that happens in our AI-dominated technological landscape, I have no idea. But I wanted to introduce that complication. Absolutely. Super important, because when Birhane says that the AI system replicates the past, what she means is that, or how I read it, is that the AI system assumes, revives, or maintains the assumptions of the past, and those assumptions were what generated all the injustices of the past. Right. In another sense, as she says somewhere else, she's like, predictive systems make predictions, but they take no account of causal mechanisms. They don't have memory. These systems operate in a null time, outside of time. And so they are an erasure of the past. They're predicated on the past insofar as they endorse the assumptions of the past, the social order that the past has produced, but they see that social order as non-temporal. They see that social mm. order as eternal. They erase the past. And so I totally agree with your, what you're saying. There's a nice little quote here on page uh, 10 of her paper where she quotes a guy named Glazersfeld. I don't know who he is, but he says, objectivity is a subject's delusion that observing can be done without him. Invoking objectivity is abrogating responsibility. Hence, its popularity. <laughs> I like that, right. yeah. And this is super important. There's another piece that we read in preparation for this, a piece that Berhane wrote for Aeon. Right. Titled, Descartes was wrong. A person is a person through other persons. Where working from Ubuntu philosophy and Zulu ways of thinking, she counters Descartes' famous, I think, therefore I am, with this Zulu saying, a person is a person through other persons. Yes. And so what we have there is, the breakdown of the Cartesian subject, which finds its personhood from its isolation from all other things. For Descartes, personhood emerges in the one-on-one -on -one relationship between an individual and God. And the minute God gets out of the picture, which he does very hurriedly after Descartes' done working, like if you look at Hume, for example, where Hume makes no assumption about God, then the individual is purely self-defined, completely autonomous. This is the famous buffered self thing that we got from- right. Charles Taylor. And there's a fear, a kind of anxiety, I think, in the West that by giving up that Cartesian atomistic subject, we will lose our individuality, our personhood. Right. That our personhood is purely dependent on this kind of Augustinian abstract idea of free will or the soul dropped into a body that exists apart from all things. We fear that we'll lose. But in fact, what Birhane is proposing, that persons are shaped and turned into persons through other persons is basically an axiological rather than a metaphysical theory of the person. By axiological, I mean aesthetic and ethical. The reasoning involved in axiology is not the reasoning of necessary causes, but the reasoning of contingent choices. So what I mean is that if we become persons through our interactions with persons, we are nevertheless actual persons after going through that process. Like that, that actually gives us shape as unique individuals, as singular and irreducible and irreplaceable beings in a kind of um, latticework of other beings. Mm. And this reminds me of uh, Leibniz, who's a, a wonderful philosopher. I don't think we've ever brought him up 
here on uh, you on have. your studies. Have I? Um, I think you have. Probably. I'm a dummy. Yeah. I don't but, know from Leibniz. Isn't that a kind of cookie? Like, <laughs> it should be. Or a, a breakfast cereal? Yeah. Um, Leibniz offers an alternative view to that whole lineage. Okay. So there are ways in which Leibniz is an arch rationalist. He is a European, he's a thinker. But his conclusions are very interesting in that they transcend the kind of digital analog binary in an interesting way. So, for instance, he famously posited the, the monad, the monad as the kind of basic unit of what constitutes reality. So we're all these self-contained beings who nevertheless reflect and depend upon and are interwoven with all of the universe, such that every monad is a mirror of the entire universe. So already you have an interdependency there that compromises the reductionism of like a Descartes. But he also has an interesting way of talking about machines. He says, this is uh, paragraph 64 of his monadology. He writes, thus, each organized body of a living being is a kind of divine machine or natural automaton. And I love the way he has two terms there. Divine machine from the point of view of final causes. If you want to think about of beings in terms of what their goals are, what mm -hmm. their telos is, then they are divine machines. But if you think of them in terms of efficient causes of like how their parts interact, they are natural automatons. The body of a living being is a kind of divine machine or natural automaton, which infinitely surpasses all artificial automata. In other words, all of our technologies are fundamentally different from the machines that we are as living beings. They're like imitations, pale imitations. Tolkien, in his great essay on fairy stories, which we are planning to do at some point, yeah. insists that the creativity that goes into human art and technology should be called sub-creation. Because it's always kind of imitating a creative act that, of course, Tolkien would associate with God. It never reproduces the divine act. So, Or the elves. He or seems, the elves, yeah. Yeah, he seems yeah. to reserve to elves the powers of true creation. But anyway, sorry. Right, right, right. Uh, well, he specifically says that we make an imitation of our maker at, at one point. But yeah, he does play with the idea of the elves as uh, participating in that. So he says, and Leibniz continues, for a machine constructed by man's art is not a machine in each of its parts. This is fascinating. What he's saying is that a machine that we've made, whether it's a primitive pump or the latest AI system, right, mm -hmm. is not a machine in each of its parts. Whereas the machines that we are as living beings, natural machines, he says, that is living bodies, are still machines in the least of their parts to infinity. Hmm. And this is something he got from the, what do you call it, microscopic revolution at the time, sure. where, where looking at things from a different angle, and you're seeing all this complexity. And what he's saying is that what we mean by analog is digitality in the infinite. You can go as deep as you want, you'll never reach the bottom of it. Whereas all these technologies are basically reducing the universe to a system that human beings can intellect. and then are reproducing that picture of, of reality for us. So they're betraying the kind of infinite complexity of reality. So you can get outside the kind of deadlock of digital or analog and see how these technologies betray the real without simply condemning them. Because you can then imagine how a technology could, no technology could grasp the infinite. No technology could grasp the 
uh, fluctuating nature of the real. However, machines could be theoretically designed that account for that, mm. that assume it, mm. that don't make the types of control-oriented predictions that our current systems are trying to make. Wonderful, wonderful. I think Leibniz is a kind of cookie, so I really don't know what I'm talking about. But it seems to me that one way of paraphrasing what Leibniz is saying there is that the human is relational all the way down to the innermost exactly. cells. Because what is a machine? I, I once uh, quoted Adam Savage, formerly of Mythbusters, who has a wonderful YouTube channel called Tested, which I sometimes watch. And he's talking about a machine. And he was like, staircase is a machine. If you think like a machine is like different pieces put together to do a thing. Yeah. In other words, relational, like you have pieces put together to do a thing. And Leibniz says, well, that extends all the way to the absolute limits of our perception. It's relations all the way down. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what he's saying. And, you know, someone who said it in much simpler terms is Martin Buber in I and Thou, where he basically says that the primary word, I, thou, which is one word, but that immediately generates two words, I and thou, is inherently fundamentally relational. Like the basic reality for Buber is relation itself. That's what defines reality. Right. Not any particular term of a relation, but relation itself. Yes. And creativity, I think also to let's cycle back to creativity. So something that dogs every writer, certainly a writer on academic subjects or like nonfiction writers, is the possibility that there is nothing new under the sun, right? Isn't that from Ecclesiastes? It is, yeah. 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 And indeed, Tonberg slash our known friend makes much of that famous line from Ecclesiastes because he says, well, that's the wisdom of the serpent that there's nothing new under the sun. And so creativity on that account consists in the reshuffling of known elements into hitherto unknown configurations. But the idea that there is nothing new under the sun, that you have nothing new to say, that worry that used to dog me as it dogs everybody in this game, that went away when I realized that what is new in a piece of writing is relational. Right. You know, think back to the Heracliton dictum that no one steps into the same river twice because the river is different every time, right? Which another way of framing that is like the relationship of all its many objects, the bits of particulate matter being born along in the river and the fish in the river and the stones and the sand, grains of sand at the bottom of the river to say nothing of you and all your bits, you know, skin sloughing off and regrowing and all the rest of it. That every moment of time is a fresh relation between uncountable entities mm -hmm. that are all shifting in respect to one another. And yes, exactly. when I realize that that is also what happens in a moment of intellectual work, in writing, or for that matter, in a conversation like this one, that it's not the newness of the idea. You can't take an idea abstract it from a setting and kind of test it, like put some kind of Geiger counter of intellectual novelty up against it to see if it registers, right? Yeah. That is as silly as abstracting the human being and putting her in a lab and making her memorize flashcards and shit. Um, 
that abstraction is a profoundly unnatural operation where you're actually trying to cut away the very thing that allows newness to enter the picture, which is the infinite diversity of relations, of interactions. And so when you and I sit down to talk about this essay, The Impossibility of Automating Ambiguity, I mean, this is an essay that has definable ideas. We are talking about them, I hope, accurately. And somebody might say, well, you're not adding anything new. You're just telling us what Bitterhenny says, which from a certain point of view would be fair enough. But what we are doing is we are taking all of the, not all of the ideas, this is a rich piece and we've only scratched the surface of it, but we're taking some of the ideas and we're putting them in play with one another. We're putting them in new configurations. We're configuring them with George Lewis and John Cage and Leibniz and a thousand one other things that we've talked about in this show. And all of these different elements are interfacing one with one another, relating to one another in a unique, never-to-be-repeated pattern. If we recorded this show again, let's say we turned off our recorders and discovered that both of them somehow had malfunctioned at the same time and we didn't capture this, we're like, okay, we're going to record it again tomorrow. It would be a completely different recording. And I know this because we've tried to do that in the past with our Garmin Bosia episode, which we recorded like three times or something before we finally got it, something we felt was usable. Yeah. If you're looking at it in a gross grained and frankly, rather unintelligent way, you could say that these are just iterations of the same idea, Birhane's idea, right? But if you understand The intellectual act, the act of writing or the act of recording a podcast, having a conversation, what have you, under the aspect of performance, then the performance is always new. Yeah. This is the thing that people don't understand about classical music. Why do you play the same music by, you know, dead white males, Beethoven, Brahms, etc.? I don't want to get into the whole question of canonicity and why why it's always Beethoven and Brahms, but like... What would be the point of playing music that everybody knows? There's lots of pianists that can play Beethoven's Waldstein Sonata. Why do you got to play it? Because every time, it's not the same piece. Yeah, I'm playing the notes on the page. I'm playing the score. I'm rendering it as best I can. But a performance makes the piece new, new in a real way, not in some fake way or some kind of like consolation prize way. Absolutely new, new in the sense of like the, the wisdom of the dove, the open circle. The spiral. Well, new in the sense that it's happening as an event in time, as opposed to some kind of platonic solid that's just you're dropping yes. down here and there. So precisely. Like, it's the historicity of the event that makes it new. Yeah. It's the exactly. iteration of the idea that makes it new. And it's also what the idea is doing in the world. You can have an idea that just sits there on a shelf doing nothing. You can have an idea that you know, as Deleuze says, becomes a brick you can bust a window with, you know, ideas do things in the world. And that's where reality is. And that's exactly what gets abstracted out of the equation the minute these predictive systems come into play. Machine learning systems, as I was saying before, are aspire to a kind of atemporality. And as a result, since they have such a large uh, influence on our lives, they're moving us into a false atemporality a kind of eternal now of the control, the consumer control space, right? And so if nothing else, the piece should serve as a kind of um, warning about overemphasizing one side 
of what is ultimately the universal cognitive equation of human existence, which is that we do need categories. We do need to think things through. We need, do need to develop concepts to adequately engage with reality as it presents itself to us in its ever-changing form. But, but we have to remember that the form is ever-changing at the same time. We have to remember that our categories and concepts are contingent, that they are themselves events in the eventual space of the real, in the flow of time. And that just as it's perfectly rational and makes perfect sense to say, as Ecclesiastes does, that nothing is new under the sun from the point of view of efficient causality, the point of view of how one thing you know, like uh, the, the laws of thermodynamics, like there can be no input of, of energy. The energy is stable and constant, right? There's a conservation going on in, in reality where, in a sense, nothing new can enter from that point of view. But there's the other point of view, which is that every moment is the sudden eruption of something absolutely new through the relational aspect of reality, which is not something you can subtract from reality. It is as constitutive as the fact that whatever is new will somehow, almost by magic, conform to our basic image of the world. Because if it didn't, then we would live in absolute chaos. So we still need the constants that require us to be able to think of each new moment as a rendition or an iteration of something we've seen before, but at the same time, in its very iteration, in its very eventing forth, it is absolutely new. It's like a both-and thing. We need to be able to think in both ways. And right now, we're stuck in a system that's just emphasizing one side of it and completely denying the other. So one thing that interests me about this paper is the notion of what Berhene calls the data subject. I don't know if that's a unique coinage or if that's just a widely used term of art in AI and machine learning, but it's a kind of a digital doppelganger that is formed as we make our way through a smart technology equipped world, right? Part of what is at stake in all of what we're talking about is a massive data harvesting operation where merely by using the internet, unless you've got a VPN and maybe you're using Privacy Badger or, or something, like if you're putting effort into privacy, then you're insulating yourself from the wholesale farming of your data 
But most people don't give a shit about that. Most people probably have very little idea of just how much of their data is being removed from them. Like, in a sense, it's not being removed from them, right? Because it's not as if identifying data is being taken, like, you know, your like unauthorized accessing of your social security number and address and phone and all, although a certain amount of that does go on as well. But we're talking about like, you know, preferences and patterns, habits, metadata, and all of that harvesting goes on to create a kind of a fictional version of you. And what a lot of these machine learning predictive AI systems seem to be doing is not actually engaging with you, who you are, this singularity, this product of all of your relations. What AI is interacting with is this digital doppelganger that has been formed by the constant skimming off of your data. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, based on your past decisions interpreted as moves on a chessboard, right? Right. So it's like, yeah, exactly. And so there's a quote in here, a quote from a work by somebody named H.R. Maturano, who is not a person known to me, who writes, if you deprive people of the opportunity to contest and protest against their characterization, for example, the formation of this digital doppelganger, this data subject that is a kind of a, a poppet of you, like a voodoo doll of you that predictive AI is sticking pins into. Uh, getting back to Maturana's quote, if you deprive people of the opportunity to contest such characterizations, quote, you treat them like freely disposable objects. They have the status of slaves compelled to function without the opportunity of complaining when they do not like what is happening to them. And that seems to me to be a very important point. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Especially when you consider the fact that these doppelgangers are used then to determine the sorts of things you'll be exposed to in digital space. And so the doppelganger then becomes not just the puppet, but a puppeteer. It begins to oh, that's uh, a good point. set the terms of the decisions you make. It begins to present you with certain options and not others. It's used as a way to not just predict your behavior, but determine your behavior. I mean, your choice to participate in that sort of technological shenanigan will have an impact not just on what you do in the future, but who you will be, right? right? And that's the great danger. I agree with Birhani that we're not giving bioethics or ethics, technoethics or whatever they call it, the place it deserves in the conversations pertaining to these technologies. Yeah. She basically hints at one point that it's just an afterthought. Oh yeah, we have the ethicist here. He'll give us his little, uh, or her, she'll give us her, her take on all this, but it doesn't actually make a difference. These technologies are being deployed because they can. It's like yes. we, we are making these technologies for the same reason that, oh, I'm not going to say it. Um, for the same reason <laughs> that a dog say. licks his balls. I was, yeah, that's what I was going to say. Exactly. That's like an old playground joke that I remember yeah. from like the sixth yeah. grade. Why does same a dog here, lick I, his balls? Because he can. Yeah. Solutionism, motherfucker. That's what it is. Solutionism, where you treat every situation in life as a problem so that you can find a solution. It reminds me of like gun freaks. People yeah. in the United States who are super fucking into guns, like, don't get me wrong. It's fun to shoot guns. I've shot guns. It's fucking blast. Shooting a 45 
ACP handgun makes you feel like fucking Zeus with fucking thunderbolts in your hand. But people who are super into guns and have lots of different guns, so often I feel like they can't just be honest and say like, I just think they're cool. They go bang. They're super powerful. And I love thinking about how awesome that power is that I have in my hand. I actually don't have a problem with that. Just be honest. But no, instead, people have to be like, well, you never know what kind of situation you might get into. I carry a gun everywhere I go because I read about this one guy who walked into a bar, blah, blah, blah. And they always have their little fucking anecdotes about why they have to carry a gun everywhere. And what always strikes me about that discourse is how much they are just hoping to get in a situation where they can use a gun. Because let's face it, guns aren't that useful. Yeah. They're not that useful. And that's okay. As somebody who appreciates beautiful, useless objects, I think it's great. If you've got a lot of disposable income and you want to collect guns, knock yourself out, buddy. But don't go around acting as if the world is bristling with dangers that call for the use of a gun and then build your entire life and personality upon that erroneous belief. That's an example of what I'm, I mean by solutionism, right? Yeah. You've got these technologies and you just want to use them. And so you go inventing problems for there to be solutions to so you can use your shiny technology. Uh, yeah, solutionism is definitely a big part of it. And I, I think that's a very kind of masculine thing, if I may say so. Um, <laughs> you may. I think that's true. <laughs> Delphine has uh, recently been, she's uh, decided to become a kind of a marriage therapist for Leslie and me. <laughs> She'll often point out how I insist on solutions where what Leslie was trying to do was just basically share a moment with me or an emotion or a problem she's dealing with. And Hey, I, I resemble that remark. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds exactly. familiar. Yeah. So, uh, and, and uh, it, it's kind of arresting when it's your daughter doing it. She's 11 now, so she can pick up on all this stuff that's going on. She's a actually able to, you know, whereas I can be very argumentative sometimes when she says it, Sorry, Leslie. When she, I, I tend to, I tend to stop in my tracks and go, "Oh my God, you're right. You're right. I'm not going to get in an argument about this because the the thing is, so solutionism is one part of the problem. The other part of the problem, obviously, is money. It's capital. It's wealth. It's it's power. The fact that these technology, the, the, the idea that we could discuss these things neutrally, even as they're being deployed on a massive scale to generate profit, is absurd. You know, I see. Berhani's piece as a kind of modern version of Poe's um, famous essay, Melzel's Chess Player, where Poe exposes the fraud that was the mechanical Turk, you know, the, yeah. the little automaton chess player. Uh, because what she's doing is she's pointing out that these systems, which we are often touted in certain circles as simply a natural outcome of human progress, an inevitable step in our evolution, a necessary transformation involving necessary sacrifices which we need to make in order to live in a world where all the problems that characterize the past will be, have been eliminated. That type of transhumanist lingo, which exists in attenuated forms in non-explicitly transhumanist circles, is again an attempt to make absolute to the categories that are necessarily contingent. Yeah. So we're trying to make a certain way of looking at the world into the only way of looking at the world and then justifying universalized control on that basis. Mm -hmm. And so she's pointing us to the human being hidden in, under the mechanical Turk that's making the pieces move. 
the all-too-human forces that hide behind the curtain. So, caveat emptor. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider subscribing to Weird Studies on your favorite podcasting platform. You can also follow us on Twitter, visit the Weird Studies subreddit, and of course, support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel, and the show is made with the assistance of Meredith Michael. Thank you for listening. <laughs>